It is a hump day get-together here on Birds 365, your home for Birds Talk 365. You, you figured out the name. You got it down now. 365 days a year. Well, not quite because we're not here on the weekend. We are in spirit, but maybe not physically. It's your Mac and Mac, guys. Mac and Mac Part 2. John McMullen, Jody McDonald here with you to talk birds for the next two hours. Football in general, because there are some overall league issues that we will touch on over the next two hours. Mr. McMullen, how are you this morning? Doing well, Jody. Back at it. Uh, You're right, Birds 365. The title is self-explanatory, and uh, news never stops in the NFL, whether it's about the Eagles' dysfunction or about the league in general. We were talking a little bit off the air about off-season work already. We're up to I think it's three teams that have opted out uh, of not opted out because they're they're wrangling and they're saying they're not going to show up for voluntary work, and that's what the NFLPA wants. They want no off-season work for veteran players, especially Jody. That opens a can of worms, though. A lot of worms with that right. can. I got a whole bunch of things as far as questions go that I hope you know better than I do. Uh, I understand the way the NFLPA works and what they're attempting to do, but there are some major questions with this particular stance that they're taking. We'll get into that, but do want to start with the birds because Bo Wolf, one of the triumvirate who put the article together uh, that questioned the dysfunction in Eagle land these days is going to join us coming up in about uh, less than 20 minutes from now, uh, somewhere thereabouts. And I did get some calls last night. I was on WIP last night. And I I can legitimately say there is concern amongst Eagle Nation. I don't want to say that my show is the sounding board for all things Eagles or Philadelphia sports. I got a a disturbed and somewhat large uh, following (laughs) that uh, come on my show. You can say it. I I have confidence in the crew that does uh, listen and or uh, reach out and touch me at night's. Uh, There are some people that really are wondering where is the direction of this team going, that uh, it's just a scant few years since the Eagles won a Super Bowl. How could things go astray this fast with this organization? And certainly the guys from The Athletic put together a picture that is not necessarily pretty and one that doesn't have all the answers. And we're coming up on a pretty important time just over two weeks from now when the Eagles have an 11 pick day or three days in the NFL draft that will either help to turn this thing around and or continue to dysfunction. We'll either get this to be an improved team for four, 11 and one or stay further mired in last year's awful season and sitting at the top of the draft again next year, uh, Eagles fans don't believe in the rebuild. What was the word no. that Jeff Lohr used? Transactional year or transition? Trans- transition, transition year. Yeah. yeah. Eagle fans don't want to hear anything about transitions. They no. want improvement starting next year. And if you read the article done by the three guys at The Athletic, I don't think that's in the offing in 2021. Do you, John? No, that's one of the things they kind of agreed on is the fact that there's no self-awareness. So if you look at uh, constructive criticism, I think everybody thinks, you know, Jeffrey Lurie certainly means well. I don't think anybody thinks he's uh, actively uh, trying to undermine his team. He's trying to do what he thinks is best for the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, he's, if anything, he's very self-assured. I, I give him that. He, he really believes and how he runs this organization. 
you know, maybe that's one of the problems. You hear it all the time with powerful people, Jody. They surround themselves with people who are going to say, you're great, yes to everything. And it's really difficult to get that constructive criticism to them. That's the only way I can explain this, because Jeffrey Lurie is pretty, um, you know, straight ahead, man. I mean, he just fired a, a head coach who won the Super Bowl. He just he just essentially fired a quarterback he he thought was the face of the franchise and agreed to pay $128 million and, and uh, ended up eating $34 million of that in NFL record. So that tells you this guy thinks, okay, I made a mistake from that standpoint. I'll move on from that. But when it comes to him, when it comes to his own behavior, there's no correction. The correction was post-Chip Kelly when he said, I lost too much control of this organization. I'm never going to do that again. Yeah. There's got to be a, a happy medium there, I would think. So would I. And it's funny that you went there with Carson Wentz because that was my stance both here on Birds 365 and my WIP show uh, last night as well. The fact that they did move on from Carson Wentz after having built up Carson Wentz, paid Carson Wentz, put Carson Wentz on a pedestal, it all came down, crumbling down pretty damn quickly in the course of uh, certainly less than one year in a calendar and basically one year in an NFL season. But they did the right thing, despite the fact that their previous actions should have told them, no, we're committed here. Maybe we need to continue to work on this. Maybe there is a turnaround in the offing that we can get this ship righted and going back in the right direction. They didn't. And I thought, and I pretty sure you agree with me, that was the right thing to do. There wasn't any repairing Carson Wentz. Even with a new coach, that wasn't going to repair Carson Wentz. He wanted out. He had had a bad year. He lost what footing he had in the locker room. It might not have been good enough to begin with, but the, the shaky footing that he had completely went out from underneath them. So they needed to do what they had to do. And even though it was a difficult task, sucking up $33 million in dead cap a hit, they did it. And I thought that showed promise that the Eagles could admit when something went awry, admit that they had made an evaluation, acted upon it, Yet after further evaluation, they said, we made the wrong call. We need to correct it, as costly a correction as it was. That gave me hope that the Eagles were good enough at self-evaluating that when things went wrong, they could do it. The article that the guys in the Athletic Road told me, don't get crazed about this. There's still <laughs> a whole bunch of dysfunction in in, in Yeah, and, and, you know, the most interesting part, perhaps, was the realization that it's not going to change. The, the part with uh, uh, Jeffrey Laurie and how he handles things, the, the communication between him and Howie Roseman, Howie Roseman, the coaching staff, Howie Roseman, the analytical, the analytics department, I think that's the interesting thing because this organization kind of frames itself as being very collaborative. Uh, everybody's involved and it seems behind the scenes, it's the exact opposite. It's basically you're bundling information to the most important man in the building through one other man. So he's getting only one lens and that's Howie Roseman's lens. And he seems very, very comfortable with it. And Maybe we need a different setup. Maybe we need, say, a three-pronged approach where the head coach reports to the owner, the GM reports to the owner. Maybe even 
uh, a personnel. It's not going to happen. I'm saying maybe that would be the better approach. But look, Jeffrey Lurie's looking at everything else in his organization except himself. That's that's what I take out of this. Uh, I'll give you my take on the three pronged approach. They tried it in New York with the Jets. The owner hired both the coach and the general manager at the same time and said, I expect both of you guys individually to report to me that the coach didn't necessarily report to the general manager. Disaster. It was awful. I well, believe- I'm not that, and let me jump in real quick, Jody. I'm not yeah. saying it's automatically going to work. I'm saying when you have something that isn't working, so when you're using the Jets example, well, you say, okay, these three men or whatever, the three-pronged approach, it's not working here, and you've got to go in a different direction. What I'm saying with the Eagles is this approach is not working. So, you know, deep back, though, let's try something else. doesn't guarantee it's going to work. Correct. And I don't think the approach works, period. What you need is, if you're going to do it the standard way they do it in the National Football League, the owner hires the general manager slash president. He reports directly to the owner. The owner and the general manager, in collaboration, there's that favorite word, uh, hire the head coach. The head coach reports to the general manager, and the general manager reports to the owner that there's a chain of command. I think that's absolutely the best way to do it. Between you and my, me, it might be the only way to do it. I don't think the three-pronged approach works. Here's well, I don't the, know about three-pronged, but I'll give you an example. Bill Belichick. Okay. Like, I agree with you. Traditional setups are usually the best, and that's where uh, the coach reports to the general manager. As you said, the general manager reports to the owner. Uh, traditionally, if you have people that are comfortable with each other, that trust each other, I think I agree with you. I think that's the best setup. You know, one of the things I, I, I talked about with Doug Peterson, because even media people in Philadelphia who were around during the Andy Reid regime got used to a head coach who had tremendous, tremendous power. And they looked at Doug Peterson, and I always joke with Mike Sealski, our buddy who we just had on the show, he did that that ficus plant column about Doug Peterson when he was up there during draft prep and he wasn't talking. And I said, you know, traditionally in the NFL, that's how it works. You, 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 you're not involved as the head coach. The GM is the offseason, Howie season, and the end season is for the coach. The GM gives the team to the coach to coach. That's the traditional way. But you do have Bill Belichick. You do have Pete Carroll, who have been extremely successful and yield more power. Belichick is essentially the de facto GM as well with the Patriots. Carroll has more power than John Schneider, but they work uh, very well together. Um, But that's a big job. I don't advocate any coach tries to take on that job. The problem here is, Howie Roseman, there's a history there, and he doesn't get along with a lot of people, uh, at least for a long shelf life type of period. Here's why I think the uh, scenarios that you're describing are surely outliers. How many <laughs> Super Bowls has Belichick won? Yeah. Uh, once well, you start that, racking up outliers, yeah. multiple Super Bowls, yeah, you're going to have more say than the average NFL coach has, and you've earned it, and you deserve it, and I tip my cap, and yes, 
you can become, quote unquote, the man within the organization. Yes, Bill Belichick has done that. And uh, a little different in Seattle, whereas Pete Carroll, I believe, was hired first. And he was involved in the hiring of Schneider. Do I have that correct? That Yeah. And they worked, uh, by the way, they worked tremendously. It doesn't see to me, if you find two people that work well together, it really doesn't matter because it, as a head coach with power, you don't have enough time in the day to, to worry about college scouting during the season. So ultimately, all it comes down to is you're hiring people that you trust or you're bringing people around you that you trust. When it doesn't work, you have that distrust between each part of the organization. That seems to be what's going on in Philadelphia. That that seems to be what's going on to me. Do you believe that's the reason why? And again, this was all reports. I never talked to anybody. I'm sure you talked to some people. Uh, the fact that the Eagles considered hiring McDaniels as a head coach during oh, the I, I wanted. To, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Jody. Give me, give me the background on that. <laughs> I figured that had to be a Howie kind of when Jeffrey was courting him and or flirting with him. Howie was thinking along the lines that you were just talking about. There needs to be a relationship between the general manager and the coach. Even if the power base is 90-10, you still have to coexist. You have to be on the same yeah. page. You have to be able to work with a guy. I figured how he said, McDaniels and I are going to be oil and water. It's just not going to work. And he sold Jeff Laurie on that, that they never even got that far down the road with McDaniels. See, I heard, and it surprised me, I heard the exact opposite. I heard that Howie wanted to bring Josh McDaniels in, and essentially Jeffrey Laurie uh, saved Howie because Jeffrey Laurie realized, look, these two guys can say whatever they want, but ultimately they're not going to get along. And by the way, I think Jeffrey Lurie's 100% right. Right, so do I. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, yeah, it was very strange. The, the, the talk around the league was that Howie was pushing for Josh McDaniels. But, you know, and we're going to have Bo Wolf on in a couple minutes. And as I ruminated over their story a little bit over the day yesterday after our show, I started thinking about the coaching search and I started to thinking about, cause there were whispers, there were heavy whispers. Josh McDaniels was going to be the next coach of this team. Oh yeah. And you know, as bad as Josh was in, in his first opportunity in Denver, and that was as bad as it gets. He, he left Indianapolis at the altar. He still has this reputation. He still has this, you know, he's had a hundred head coaching interviews. Um, he always thinks another one is around the corner. I started to think to myself, Josh McDaniels would not have accepted those Tuesday meetings with the owner. But I, I believe that. And my, that, now I'm not saying that that's what happened, but if that was run across him, I, I don't think Josh McDaniels in any way would have agreed to that. Andy Reid didn't have to agree to that. That's, you know, if you have some gravitas as a head coach, you're not agreeing to that nonsense. What Bo and the guys explained, you know, Doug Peterson going in after upsetting Green Bay, and he's getting criticized. Could you imagine Josh McDaniels putting up with that? And uh, I, I understand, and I think your sources are actually on point, that it could have been from afar. It just seemed to me like 
Howie would be the one who would put a kibosh on McDaniels, not the other way around. And Howie was the one who was fighting for him. And Jeffrey was the one who said, now, wait a minute. It does make some sense when you think about it, because you're right. When McDaniels did what he did with Indianapolis, he more or less left both the general manager and the owner. But the owner had to feel the sting to be left at the altar after they'd hired assistant coaches Mm -hmm. to work with McDaniels. He says, yeah, no, never mind. I didn't put pen to paper. I'm going back to Uncle Bill in New England. They've already given those contracts. The assistant coaches said, well, no, we're signed. We're planning on showing up to work. Luckily, they hired Frank Reich, who incorporated those guys into his staff, and they didn't uh, pay the price as much as they could have. But the owner, Ursay, had to be so ticked off at that. Oh, yeah. That that's I don't know if Jeff called uh Ursay and said how bloody was it, how bad was it? And that started it down the uh, road of this ain't happening. Um, but I, I was thinking as to why Howie would want to do something like that didn't make sense. No to me. idea. From either perspective, <laughs> maybe it was Howie, because part of what we get out of the article done by the triumvirate of athletic writers and Bo Wolf will join us in less than five minutes is, you know, this guy will shoot himself in the foot at some point. I'll get some good coaching results out of him. But then at some point, he'll do something really foolish and Jeffrey will get really ticked off. And the reason that the Eagles built up and then fell back down, never built up, will be put at his doorstep and it will have the microscope off Harry Roseman. Because if nothing that we've seen over the last couple of years stands out as much as Howie Rose, the ultimate survivor, Howie's pretty smart at this. He's gotten very good at playing the NFL executive game. He knows that, uh, yeah, let, let, let me shine the light on someone else if there's blame to be had so it doesn't shine directly at me. It's probably a good way to keep in the position that you're you're in for the last well decade. yeah i mean all you got to know about howie roseman is typically if you're a general manager in this league you don't get to pick as many coaches in one spot as howie roseman i mean it just doesn't happen so to call him the ultimate survivor i think is is pretty fair at this point but this again ties back to the article that we're going to talk about bo wolf uh, with coming up here in just a couple of minutes how much is Howie really picking the head coach? You just mentioned it's a poor head coach. It seems to me, without being a fly in the wall when they're having their meetings and making these decisions, maybe this is a lot more Jeffrey's decision than it is Howie. Oh, and it, Howie is it just completely, completely Jeffrey. But it should be. He's the owner of the team. I have no problem when he chimes in on the head coach or even the quarterback. You know, when you start to chime in on draft picks and position coaches. Then I go, that's a bridge too far. We'll talk about that with our next guest. Bo Wolf, one of the three authors of the big story on The Athletic about the Eagles' dysfunction. He's going to join us next. Stay right here with us on Birds 365. If you missed any of today's show on the Jacob Media channel, listen to the podcast on your way home. Available on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. Welcome to the Wildwoods, the perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all. Catch a wave, take a nap, go for a drive, grab a bite. It's your vacation, and we're doing everything we can to make it a safe one. The Wildwoods. Your vacation, your way. 
the, the middle. middle. So, bro, I know we're going to get on that, but I, I, I got to say happy birthdays to the, to the kids in the stream. You know what I'm saying? We, we looking, we checking it out. Happy birthday to your, your kids, man. You know what I'm to saying? To who? To kids, man. I'm watching the stream, man. What stream? It's double birthdays. You got to keep your eyes yeah, off that stream. Yeah, man. seriously. <laughs> you have a conversation with the stream, and nobody has any idea what you're talking about. You got to give us That's a heads up. Get you hip to it. Because I then, gotta get you hip to it. No, no, no. We, no, no. we have no idea what you're talking bro. about. So now we're in the middle of something, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Happy right. birthday. Happy birthday yeah. to who? I have no idea what was, what's going on right now. I, I can just imagine people listening on Sports Map Radio just like, what did he just say? Who's Play talking Action to? Real. Play Action Real. His son, Nick. Happy birthday, bro. And All right. Like, now now everybody's got a birthday. Joey B's daughter, 16 today. Yeah. I mean, calling BS today. Seriously. This is like A.C. Green selling that he right. was a virgin back with Showtime. The Middle with Aton Shander, Barrett Brooks, and Harry Mays. Weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local Union 98, is a proud sponsor of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause every Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. IBEW Local 98's highly trained and superbly skilled electricians are the best in the business, setting the highest safety standards in the electrical industry. So when you're planning your next industrial, commercial, or residential project, choose an IBEW Local 98 union contractor. Learn more at IBEW98.org. The future waits for no one, so we refuse to wait for it. We're not just pilots and engineers. We are pioneers. Today, battles are waged in nanoseconds, and planes are piloted from the other side of the world. We turn night into day and fly missions in space. The future is not coming. It's already here. This is the future. Join us and be the future. Jody Mack, the legendary sports talker, joins forces with NFL insider John McMullen. Start your morning with Johnny Mack and Jody Mack across the Jacob Media Network. Day edition of Birds 365. You got the Mac and Mac guys, John McMullen and Jody Mac hanging with you. We're lucky enough to have a regular Eagle guest joining us now, part of the three writer grouping that put together a kind of telltale article on the Philadelphia Eagles paranoia, mismanagement, and office politics. The title gets you right there. You, you, you can't get to the article fast <laughs> enough when you see that. Bo Wolf joins us here on Birds 365. How you doing today, Bo? Doing well. Credit to the uh, credit to the editor for the headline. <laughs> editor, credit to you guys because it was a hell of an article. Before we started to get into the uh, exact uh, things that you guys were able to unearth, after you write a piece like this, and both John and I have been singing you guys' praises for a couple of days now, uh, you get responses. Uh, the way the athletic has it set up, people can comment right there online afterwards. <laughs> You've got your social media accounts and the like. How much attention do you pay to that? Do you uh, want to know what everybody thinks? Do you wait a good couple of days and then say, all right, now I got to go through this all? Or do you not even pay any attention to it at all? It was a very attention-grabbing article that you did. How do you deal with uh, people's opinions about it <laughs> after the fact? That's a good question. Uh, I think you, you sort of like pay attention to the to the immediate reaction as the story goes up. You want to see, you know, if it's if it's um, 
you know, reaching people or not. And then as, as the uh, critical mass gets a little bit higher, you, you sort of tune out a little bit, but it, it seems like the, the overwhelming reaction from Eagles fans was something like, uh, you know, good job. I hate you for making me so depressed. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you should have gave out a link to some kind of therapy site or something of that nature. <laughs> yeah. We should have, uh, we should have had a, you know, some, some kind of a, you know, uh, deal for that or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Should have been sponsored, but Sponsorship, uh, yeah. You know, I I do think you know one of the things we had Sheila on yesterday. So, I uh, you know after looking at it and sort of ruminating through twenty four hours, I, I want to go a different route with you. When you started s- sort of this story, when you guys began it, and and you're around the team obviously every day. The pandemic obviously uh, scaled back our 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 ability mm-hmm. to 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 reach people last year but nonetheless y- you know what's going on with this team so when you started this to when you published it what was the biggest surprise to you that came out of it well i think it's you know it's important to say that we started this process you know without an endpoint in mind you know the idea was we would all reach out to you know people we knew or, or had some kind of connection with and we would just ask them you know how is it that this team went from the top of the league to, you know, one of the, one of the worst situations in the league. How did this, you know, Super Bowl roster and franchise sort of crumble over the course of three years? And I think we were probably expecting a little bit more, uh, you know, Carson Wentz stuff. Um, but that's that's not really the direction that it went. And, and you know, listen, we talked to, you know, not just people who are no longer with the team anymore or, or people who left because they were told to leave. You know, we, we had a good cross-section of of sources across sort of levels and departments. And everybody was sort of talking about, you know, the the political nature of this building and, and not just from people who have, you know, uh, only worked in that building, people who have worked in other places say, you know, this is a different sort of atmosphere behind the scenes than, than other places we have been. Well, let me, uh, again, I want to get into actually what was written and where sure. we go from here with this, but I do want to ask you one more question about the fallout. Uh, again, I thought it was on point and very revealing. It was surely not complimentary for the Philadelphia Eagles. Do you get any feedback from the organization itself, either directly or through channels that, hey, you, you, you rub some people the wrong way, maybe some important people the wrong way. Uh, that wasn't right. They disagree. Sometimes it'll lend itself to another column thereafter if there's a strong enough disagreement and you can get a sit down with somebody. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of feedback did you get, if any, from the organization itself? Well, listen, I mean, we tried to be as fair as possible um, as we went through through this process. So, the, you know, the lines of communication with the team were, were open before um, and after the story was was put out. You know, we wanted to present information as, as fairly as possible. Um, and I think, you know, as we were like going over the article on, on Sunday, you know, we're going word by word and trying to be like overboard that that we're not, you know, taking any cheap shots or everything that's in there has been you know, uh, vetted by multiple independent sources other than quotes, obviously. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I'm sure that, that they, the Eagles don't love uh, the tone of, of uh, you know, or I guess the overall way that the front office is described, but but there, there should have been no surprises from their end. Um, well, okay, let's uh, get into the guts of the story itself. I mean, one of the things that concerned me the most of uh, how the Eagles are portrayed is, 
the lack of transparency from certain parts of the organization. For instance, I don't think a lot of Eagles fans even know who Alec Halaby is, and he is very important to this organization, um, an executive vice president. Um, when you think about, and even if you go to Howie Roseman and Jeffrey Lurie, who are public-facing figures, uh, they don't talk that much. But the head coach is out there multiple times a week, and it seems like the head coach is often thrown out there without a lot of information. I think that would be fair to say. Um, if if the analytics and, and, and the scouting department are, are butting heads, shouldn't, you know, one have the same kind of transparency as the other if you want them to be some sort of equals? Yeah, and I think, you know, the problem is not necessarily that that we don't hear from, you know, Alec Hallaby that, that there's not as much transparency to the outside. I think the real problem is there's not a lot of transparency within the building. And, and that's how you get a situation where, you know, people on the scouting side or people on the coaching side sort of view the analytics department with, with a, you know, a suspicious eye because there is not a lot of transparency about how decisions are made. And the result of that is natural finger pointing, like, uh, if if we take a guy on, on draft day who is not at the very top of our board, you know, what other choice do I have than to than to sort of point fingers and, and say, oh, well, it must be, you know, the analytics influence or from the other side, it must be, you know, Jeffrey Lurie's influence or something like that. So I think that is is the problem. And that was a a very common theme of the people we talked to, even people who are, you know, you, you know, speak highly of Howie Roseman or, or happy there. It's, you know, I wish that we could have a little bit more um, understanding of how these decisions are made. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that's like, it's not just football. It's like any business that you're in. If you don't know how decisions are made or how your work is impacting the overall product, of course, that's going to lead to frustration. One part of the story that I thought garnered the most attention and well, it should was about the Tuesday meetings between Harry Roseman and Doug Peterson and Jeffrey Laurie, and that they oftentimes turned into inquisitions, not just corrective criticism for the head coach. If they was were as bad as your sources told you that they were, and they affected Doug, and it seems to me, reading somewhat between you guys' lines, that that is the case, that it was something that just made Doug Peterson crazy. How good a job did he do keeping it to himself, not letting it leak out into the public? He did do some of his inner circle, and you guys were able to get to those type guys. But it sounds to me like he was under scrutiny like nobody's business, certainly not a Super Bowl winning coach's business. I think in 2020 hindsight, he did a pretty good job of keeping it under wraps. He never publicly showed that. Do you think that was eating him up inside? I think so. And, and you're right that he did, you know, he did not let this uh, sort of seek out and seep out into his public persona. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard not to sort of feel for Doug in that, like, you win a Super Bowl, you prove everybody wrong going into that season, you're getting doubted by by all sides and probably internally as well. And you feel like, OK, like, you know, I've done it. I've earned a little bit more respect. I've earned a little bit more say. And that doesn't happen to be the case. You know, in, even in 2018, it's back to the Tuesday meetings. It's maybe a little bit more heavy handed on uh, recommendations about what he should do in game on, on fourth down and, and two point conversions and stuff like that. So you get to 2019, you have this win in Green Bay uh, where the team's one and two. You need a win. You go into Lambeau. You beat Aaron Rodgers. 
And offensively, like you run the ball a lot. And because it made sense, you, you're in 12 personnel. The, the Packers defense is going in nickel and dime. So, of course, you're going to run the ball. And then you come in on Tuesday, you're feeling good. And, you know, you get questions about why we didn't pass the ball. And, and I don't want to say that like Jeffrey Lurie is coming in and pointing fingers and is like disappointed that you're not right. You, know, you didn't pass the ball more and he's upset about it. But even if he's asking very innocently, like, why, why didn't we pass the ball more? Explain the, 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 you know, the offensive game plan to me. You know, we wouldn't have heard about this if it was the kind of thing where Doug took it that way. Obviously, Doug took it some sort of way that, you know, word of the meeting spread. And I think a lot of this stuff sort of comes down to, and Shield might have said this, just sort of like personal dynamics. Like if there's somebody to go to Doug after that meeting and be like, you know, listen, don't worry. We're just like, this is part of the process. Nobody's second guessing your decisions. We just want to sort of better understand it. If you're Doug Peterson, like over the course of, of five years and especially the three years after winning the Super Bowl, you have to imagine that that stuff sort of did, did wear on him, especially on sort of a week to week basis. You know, one of the things I was always interested about with Doug Bo is after winning the Super Bowl, typically the next move for a head coach would be to seize power, to try to get as much power as possible. Doug never did that. I, in hindsight, I think that was his biggest mistake. I, I think if you sort of do that with all that uh, money in the bank, so to speak, after the Super Bowl 52 win and say, look, I have to have the ability to hire my own coaches. Tuesday meetings, look, if I don't have time, I, I got to get ready for the game. You know, maybe we'll cut them down to twice a month or once a month or whatever. Um, do you get that sense that he didn't seize the power when he had the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fair point. And it certainly doesn't seem like that's his personality. Like, you know, to be fair, like, I don't think that Doug necessarily wanted to be super involved in, you know, the process of, of the draft or picking the roster. I think he wanted to focus more on coaching. But you're right. I mean, in some ways, this is sort of a tale as old as time, right? Like the disease of more after, after winning the Super Bowl, everybody sort of wants a little bit more power. And maybe Doug didn't seize as much power as he could have. I think it's fair to say that, probably Howie Roseman and Jeffrey Lurie maybe overestimated their impact on that 2017 roster and thought that that meant that they had, you know, discovered some secret sauce as opposed to recognizing the fact that they, they just hit lightning in a bottle and, and didn't necessarily discover anything that the rest of the league wasn't uh, keen on. They get, you know, lucky is good and, and celebrate what you did, but that doesn't mean you should uh, overvalue what you've done and, and, and look to have even more influence than you did before. So uh, yeah, I mean, those dynamics are, you know, classic, but I think I think you're probably right. If if Doug is looking back on it, I'm sure he probably does wish that he had, he had pushed for a little bit more influence in, in the wake of the Super Bowl. Bo, I got another relationship question for you. Um, Howie, Rose, Howie Roseman showed Carson Wentz the love, at least to me, in the most important place, which is the bottom line in your paycheck, giving him a $128 million contract. We've got uh, certain things that uh, became known uh, that how he had the uh, fathead in his office of Carson Wentz. I think it's rather obvious that the organization, a.k.a. the general manager, was infatuated with his quarterback. And in about a, well, I'd say under a year, 10-month period, that relationship went completely to smithereens. How did it go so bad so fast? 
if there's blame to be shared, how would you share it between the two parties? Was it more one guy's fault than the other guy's fault? Uh, this seemed to be a love affair that was hot and heavy, and all of a sudden they're heading off to divorce court in pretty quick order. What the hell happened between Howie Roseman and, and uh, Carson Wentz? Yeah, you know, that's that's an answer that we weren't really able to get to the bottom of. What? Why is it that Carson Wentz, even if his relationship with Doug Peterson had soured, why is it that when Peterson's gone, he still wants out? And and what happened with his relationship with Howie Roseman? And and I don't know if it's as simple as he didn't trust Howie as a team builder to get the roster, you know, back in better position, or uh, if he didn't trust him to, you know, get the pieces that he needed. I'm sure that, you know, Carson Wentz, like all of us, was looking at the roster over the past couple of years thinking, get me a receiver. But, I mean, listen, Carson Wentz deserves – plenty of blame here. I mean, if, if Carson Wentz was just bad last year instead of awful, we wouldn't even be having these conversations. Doug Peterson would probably still be here. The whole, the whole gang would be back together if they had just gone seven to nine or something last season. So uh, Carson Wentz deserves a lot of blame. And certainly Howie Roseman, like as was described to us by, by some people, has a, you know, uh, and he, he admits this, sort of a weakness for his favorite players. And, and maybe Carson Wentz had outsized sway on, on some decisions whether that's on the roster or with the coaching staff, but uh, he doesn't want to be sort of the, the bad guy, Billy Bean from, from Moneyball. He wants to be connected to the roster and, and feel like he has a pulse of what's going on in the locker room. But uh, there's no doubt that, you know, if Carson Wentz welcomed Howie Roseman as the guy who was going to lead the rest of his career and be in control of that, he would still be here. It's interesting you bring up Moneyball, uh, Bo. I, I think I, I asked uh, Howie about Zach Ertz, and he went into that long dissertation right. about Moneyball, but uh, being the bad cop versus the good cop. I do want to move forward with you, though, because we have a new head coach, and I want to talk about what what is the upside for Nick Sirianni here? I mean, it's unlikely he's going to win a Super Bowl after year two. It's right. unlikely he's going to get out of those Tuesday meetings he doesn't have the cachet to do that. So does it all come down to either personality? He's willing to accept that. Maybe like Jalen Hurts versus Carson Wentz about competition. Jalen seems to embrace it. Carson didn't exactly embrace it. Um, is is his ability to accept things his only path to success in Philadelphia? Yeah, it's funny because – Doug Peterson was described by so many people to us as like the easiest guy they've ever had to work with uh, across departments. Like, you know, he, somebody said like, he might, he might not have been the brightest bulb, but he was like a pleasure to work with always. And it's hard to imagine that if Howie Roseman couldn't make it work with him, that over time things aren't going to, you know, sort of, um, you know, dwindle down in terms of his relationship with Nick Sirianni. This will be his, his fourth head coach, obviously. And, and each of those previous three relationships have soured at some point. But as in terms of Sirianni, it's so interesting to think about the dichotomy of the final two candidates for the job. Like mm -hmm. Josh McDaniels isn't coming in here, sitting down for those Tuesday meetings, accepting that he has no role over the roster, letting Howie Roseman control the 46-man roster. If you bring in Josh McDaniels, you're bringing in a guy who wants to have sort of a Belichickian um, hand in everything in the organization. And obviously – it's, it's fair to surmise that that would have clashed with Howie Roseman at some point. This was Jeffrey Lurie's decision. It wasn't Howie Roseman's decision. So they bring in Sirianni. And what was so interesting in, in you know, even the, the call 
that Jeffrey Lurie made to Sirianni, it was we're excited for the coach you are and the coach you can become. I think they view him as sort of an investment in they can bring him along as a head coach and, and hold his hand a little bit. And there's no doubt, like there's going to be, I'm sure there's going to be those Tuesday meetings with Sirianni. I'm sure um, that Sirianni is going to have to accept that he doesn't have the most powerful voice in the organization, which is, which, I mean, listen, it could work. It's fine. It worked with Doug Peterson. They won a Super Bowl. This stuff is not necessarily disqualifying, but uh, you know, you better, you better win early, I guess, in those first two years, because, you know, this year there's no expectation the Eagles are going to be a, a great competitive team. We'll see what happens next year. There's excitement about Sirianni in the building, but um, it does seem a little bit like these relationships with Howie Roseman tend to have sort of a shelf life over time. Bo, see if you're on the same page with me with this draft coming up now in only 15 days. And it'll probably be an easy, easier collaborative because, as we're noting, new head coach, wet behind the ears, not going to come in, bang any tables on draft night. You got to get me this kid. I think his uh, certainly opinion will be solicited, but I don't know that it gravitates right to the top and will drive Howie Roseman in his selections. Uh, how he's got to listen to the analytics guys and his coach is uh, scouting staff. But at the end of the day, it's going to be how he's pick, but I don't think he'll be as pressured. And maybe he had been uh, hearing different voices on a draft night as he had been over the last couple of years. But this is a huge draft for Howie Roseman because the coach who won the Super Bowl got fired during the offseason. He did not. He needs to deliver on this one. More pressure or less pressure on Howie Roseman all things considered coming into this draft than usual. You know, when I sort of think, I sort of think less pressure because he's won that battle with Doug. And now the way that things have set up, everything is really pointing towards next year's draft, right? You've got the, the early pick coming for Carson Wentz could be a first. It could be a second. You've traded down from six to 12 and you're getting a future first. So it really seems like everything about the organization right now is about building towards next offseason when you're going to have more cap space. You might have three first-round draft picks. Jalen Hurts gets this one year to, to you know prove that he could be the quarterback of the future, but it's a one-year audition. There's no doubt about that because they're going into next offseason, I'm sure, thinking if it's not going to be Jalen next year with our picks, with our cap room, that's when we're going to be able to try to really address the long-term you know, state of the quarterback position. So I feel like by the moves they've made, Howie has sort of bought himself an extra year where next offseason is really the one where he's going to have a lot of pressure. Bo, you touched on Jalen Hurts there, and I agree with you. It's obviously a one-year, essentially, opportunity for him to seize the mantle uh, of being the face of this team on the field. However, as you also pointed out, Uh, All the assets are moved forward to 2022, essentially. We know uh, the wide receiver group hasn't had a 600-yard receiver in two years, which is amazing, by the way, in the modern era of football. But nonetheless, how can he prove it with an inability? I mean, how do you even go about saying, I'm the guy when potentially next season, who knows? Deshaun Watson might be available, Russell Wilson, even Aaron Rodgers, and you're in the mix for a top 10 pick if you're either bad or even if you aren't because you might have three first-round picks to go up. Um, How can he even seize the job? Is it possible? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the odds are are probably stacked against him. Um, you're right about that. But listen, I mean, you've got a new head coach who's offensively focused. He's bringing in a new offense. Um, the offensive line is going to be much healthier next year, theoretically, than it was last year. Um, maybe Jalen Rager gets to take a step forward in year two in this offense that could potentially be better suited for him. I think there's room for upside for Jalen Hurts. Um, and listen, we know that even from last year, he's a guy who, who players gravitate towards. He's got sort of some kind of uh, dynamic magnetism to him in terms of relating to guys. So I think there's a chance. I think it's, it's in front of him. But you're right. The odds are stacked against him. And it's, he doesn't have to just be good enough. He has to be good enough for the Eagles to not use those assets to look for somebody who could really be a, a franchise quarterback. Let me follow up on that one. Um, it'd be real simple, uh, and we've learned through you guys how analytically driven the Eagles are. If Jalen Hurts throws 35 touchdowns and only 11 interceptions and has a quarterback ranking of 110, oh, yeah, he's going to be the quarterback in 2022. If he goes out and puts up Carson Wentz 2020 numbers, yes, his days are numbered. He's out as the quarterback of the Eagles. It lands somewhere in the middle. Maybe like the numbers that he put up in the four games that he started this year. Here's my question. Who's making that call? Is it the coaching staff? Is it Howie Roseman? Is it Jeff Lurie? Who's deciding, yes, this guy did enough. I want to go. And even if it's just one more year, we got to give him another year. Or, all right, we gave him his year, and it wasn't good enough in my eyes. We need to address this. We need to use assets to get our franchise quarterback. Who's the driving force behind that decision? Well, listen, I mean, we can debate Jeffrey Lurie's influence on certain moves. But there's no doubt that the quarterback of the team ultimately is Jeffrey Lurie's decision. Um, I think, uh, you know, what we've what we've uh, heard is that, you know, Jeffrey is a little bit behind giving Jalen Hurts this one year audition to begin with. And he was certainly involved in drafting Hurts uh, in the first place. But in terms of deciding who the quarterback is, who's the face of the franchise, like the most important decision that you make, even if. Uh, Jeffrey is going to certainly consider the coaching staff's opinion and Howie Roseman's opinion. Ultimately, the most important decision in the organization is going to come down to the most important person in the organization. All right, Bo, final one from me. And I want to encourage everybody to su subscribe to The Athletic. Bo did a tremendous job with Shield Capati and also Zach Berman. This story alone is worth it. I believe you guys are having a sale for the draft. Uh, so that will help people as well. And also, by the way, when are we getting a, a new Birds with Friends podcast? Hopefully hopefully tonight, I think. All right. So hopefully don't, tonight. Yeah, don't so we'll look, we'll look forward to that. You, Bo Wolf, I, if you had the opportunity, what advice would you mm. get used to be in that building? What advice would you give Mr. Lurie? I hate saying that, but what advice yeah, no, would the you Mr. give Mr. Lurie? Yeah. I would, I would say... It, it, to me, it comes down to this, this transparency issue. Um, and I think the feeling that people have that they are a little bit too siloed, that they don't have enough understanding of how decisions are made, um, I, think, I think that's a problem. And I think that over time that wears on people. And I think you have to sort of break down those, those walls a little bit. And, and you know, when it comes to things like the divide between you know, coaching and analytics, it doesn't have to be that way. You, know, you can explain to the coaching staff that, we are here to help you. We are not here to tell you what to do. We want to 
help you better understand things, to help you do your job better. Um, and when it comes to the decision-making process of the draft, like, you know, the best places that do it are we, they do all the work, the months leading up, they set their board. They've had all of these conversations ahead of time so that they don't have to be making these conversations on the clock. And that is not the case with how things have been run with the Eagles, you know, take that JJ Ortega Whiteside decision over, over Paris Campbell that, you know, Jeff McClain has written about as well. Like they're deciding on the clock who to pick. It's two guys at the same position. You should have already made that decision before the draft even started with how your board is, is stacked. So I think when you, when you get into a situation where you're scrambling a little bit and, and people are unsure of how decisions are made, I think um, that is, that is sort of a recipe for disaster. Bo, I could make my last question an easy one and just say, who are the Eagles taking at 12? But that's too mm. simple, and uh, I'd rather go in a different direction. I think who it's going to be Devontae Smith. Okay, I, <laughs> hey, if that's the case. Jody will love that. Hell yeah. of a talent at number 12. He should be a top five pick in my estimation. Uh, no, more fun is, you know there's going to be someone who will be selected at number six or later. Mm who will fall between six and 12 and the Eagles will not end up with this player and Eagle nation will be incensed that right. because the Eagles went from six down to 12, they had the chance to draft player X and player X ends up somewhere else. Who's that guy? Cause it's probably five or six or seven candidates, but which one will garner the most ire from Eagle fans? I can't believe we didn't get this player because we decided to trade down and get an extra future number one. Well, and listen, that was the risk the Eagles took by making that move so early without knowing exactly how the first four or five picks were going to play out. And it looks like there's a chance we're going to get quarterbacks one, two, three, four, which, you know, if you sit at six, you've got, you're guaranteed to have one of the two best non-quarterbacks there. To me, just like listening to Eagles fans, it sounds like Kyle Pitts is going to be that guy. Now, I don't necessarily think that I would have taken Pitts at six just because the, um, you know, the bar for a tight end being taken six is so high for it to be worth it. He's got to be like one of the two or three best tight ends in the league by next year. And rookie tight ends take a long time uh, to, to, to uh, you know, become as good as they're going to be in the NFL. But he's the guy who has sort of fascinated Eagles fans, I think, because he is this unique player. Uh, sort of, you know, described as a unicorn in his position. He's, he's from Philly, so he's got that extra little twist. So to me, he's the guy who um, is going to be the, the source of fascination for Eagles fans. Bo, great stuff. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, we already talked to Keel. Please tell Zach. We said to him as well, outstanding job by all you guys. You've given us a ton to talk about. Not all happy, not all smiles, but Eagle fans are intrigued by everything you guys wrote. Thanks for jumping in with us here today. Thanks, guys. Bo Wolf from The Athletic here with us on Birds 365. John McMullen and Jody McDonald hanging with you. We'll come back. We'll continue the Eagle conversation, but there is some NFL stuff we need to put in the mix as well. Off-season workouts to not happen in Philadelphia and or potentially anywhere else. Johnny Mac and I will discuss next here on Birds 365. If you missed any of today's show on the Jacob Media channel, listen to the podcast on your way home. Available on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local Union 98, is a proud sponsor of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause every Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. 
IBEW Local 98's highly trained and superbly skilled electricians are the best in the business, setting the highest safety standards in the electrical industry. So when you're planning your next industrial, commercial, or residential project, choose an IBEW Local 98 union contractor. Learn more at IBEW98.org. Welcome to the Wildwoods, the perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all. Catch a wave, take a nap, go for a drive, grab a bite. It's your vacation, and we're doing everything we can to make it a safe one. The Wildwoods. Your vacation, your way. The, the, the middle. <laughs> we need a little maze. Wait, wait, yeah. what was the commercial? Yeah, Harry goes, I don't need a little anything. You'd have little Harry or little maze. Little maze. And, and you pull a <laughs> string <laughs> and it yeah. says, I am out. Or sort of like four or five different maze sayings. Now that's an idea. Did you see a Shander doll? It oh, never yeah. stops talking. No, you don't even God. need to pull the string. The Middle with Aton Shander, Barrett Brooks, and Harry Mays. Weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. The light from a star can take millions of years to reach Earth. So when you look at a star, you're looking back in time. But I see the future. I see exploration and courage. I see my country finding new horizons out there. And I see giant leaps making a comeback. I see myself. The future is where I'll make history. Jody Mack, the legendary sports talker, joins forces with NFL insider John McMullen. Start your morning with Johnny Mack and Jody Mack across the Jacob Media Network. Wednesday edition of Birds 365 here on the Jacob Media YouTube channel. If you linked into us through the phillyvoice.com way of getting the show, we appreciate it. Don't really matter. doesn't bother us one way or the other. How you get here, it's that you get here, and you join us here on Birds 365. Jody McDonald along with my partner, John McMullen. Uh, coming up next hour, it's a three-way Mac attack. McDonald, McMullen, McManus, Tim McManus, ESPN Eagles beat reporter, is going to hop on board with us. So we'll get back into the bird stuff. I do want to deviate for just a couple minutes here, Johnny Mac, because there is an NFL issue that will have an effect on the birds and all 32 NFL teams. I read last week, late last week, that the NFLPA was suggesting to all their members that they should gather together as groups and tell their individual teams, listen, we think virtual reality worked for us last year when we were putting a camp together going forward into the season. Everybody worked virtually. There were no volunteer workouts for teams around the league because we were right in the middle of the COVID outbreak. It, they did pull a season off. I think they overstated how successful that season was and how seamlessly virtual workouts <laughs> went. But they did get all the games in and crowned a champion. So yeah. they did do that. It makes sense that the players would want to protect themselves, but 
is the protection as necessary as it was last year? I've been reading people's opinions that this might be a tough thing for the PA to organize and get teams to agree across the board. Well, apparently they've already gotten three that have said, yes, as a group, we've decided we're not going to do individual workouts. Uh, we're going to ask that we do them virtually again. We're not going to do them in person. We've still got a week to 10 days before most teams open for their off-season workout periods. Is it a lot more to follow with these three outliers that are going to take a stance, one of which you just told me was Tampa Bay. I knew it was Seattle and Denver, Denver, Denver. Tampa Bay. Right. Tampa Bay, Super Bowl champions, I guess they're flexing their muscles a little bit. Hey, we just won the championship. We don't need individual workouts. Uh, I get that. Are we going to see more teams over the next couple of days? You and I are going to be talking about this uh, Friday show, Saturday show, too, of adding more teams. Is this going to become a major issue in the NFL? Yeah, I think it is. I, I, I mean, the NFL has been setting, uh, the NFLPA, I should say, has been setting sort of the groundwork up for this fight for a while. They had claimed J.C. Treader, who's the president, who's uh, the center for the Cleveland Browns, had claimed that, you know, the, the product was the same with no offseason work. Uh, injuries actually decreased statistically. I don't know how you can prove that to, to, to make that uh, direct correlation. But nonetheless, bottom line is the players don't want offseason work particularly the veteran players who are entrenched and don't need it. And I'll be the first to admit, Jody, guys like Fletcher Cox, uh, they don't need off-season work. It, it, it is just, as long as they keep themselves in shape and that kind of thing, you know, if you have mandatory mini camp, training camp for those types of players, I think you would be 100% fine. The law of un unintended consequences, there's so many issues with potentially this. First of all, you got to get the agents involved because a lot of these players have workout bonuses. Right. Green Bay, Green Bay is famous for having these massive workout bonuses because let's be honest, nobody wants to be in Green Bay in the off season if they don't have to. The guys want to be in Florida, Texas, California, wherever. They don't want to be in Green Bay. So they give out these massive workout bonuses. So there's money involved, number one. Uh number two. There's a big difference between being, and we'll use the Packers as the example here, between being Aaron Rodgers and even David Bakhtiari, for instance, you know, an all-pro left tackle. Um, they, can, they can say, okay, it's voluntary. I'm not going to show up. It's really hard for quarterbacks because they need to be leaders. But nonetheless, he could do it, and he could get away with it. But if you're the 53rd man on the roster – if you're fighting for a spot and you don't show up for voluntary work, Jody, you're not going to make the football team. They're going to go to the next guy. They're going to go to the young guy who got drafted or is undrafted and has to be there. So there are so many issues here that people aren't looking at first and foremost. And that's always the big criticism with the NFLPA. They're, they do what the, the star players want. Not what the, the rank and file wants. And thank you very much for going to the Green Bay Packers, because that was going to be my next question to you. I know that Aaron Rodgers has a half million dollar, half million 
Most of these are $50,000, $100,000. Aaron Rodgers, it's $500,000 roster bonus, workout bonus. So if he wants a half a million dollars, this is not chump change. I know Aaron Rodgers makes a well, lot of money. for him. And that's he a, makes that's a week of jeopardy for him. Understood. He's got other sources of revenue, but a half million dollars is a half million dollars. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah, I'm about not, that. Yeah. You just don't write that off. If he shows and the rest of the Green Bay Packers decide as a unit, we're not showing. You mentioned quarterbacks need to be leaders. Well, he's leading, of course. He's leading for himself and his wallet and his paycheck. And he's saying, guys, if you don't show, I'm not going to sweat it all, but you can't sweat me because I'm going to show up and I guess I'm going to be throwing to assistant coaches and ball boys because you guys aren't going to be there. How does something like that play in the locker room afterwards? Because some guys are going to show uh, for the reasons you stated, guys fighting for a roster spot, do anything to put themselves in the good graces of the organization or those who are looking to cash a uh, workout bonus check. It's not going to be 100%. I don't think probably with any team but a majority of enough that the team can't take any action against them as a group. How do those, uh, it's not crossing a picket line, but how do those no. who decide not to show up <laughs> deal with their teammates after the fact? Well, Jody, I think there is going to be somewhat of a solidarity. I don't think you're going to see, for instance, Aaron Rodgers come into Green Bay by himself without the rest of the veteran Packers. I just don't see so that So then happening. what do the Packers do? Do the Packers pay him? Well, that's the part, and that's what the NFLPA is kind of wrangling with. Remember, nothing is official right now. They are pushing this, um, and obviously they've got three teams. The Eagles are going to meet uh, sometime uh, before Monday to figure out what they're going to do. It's it's going to be interesting if the dominoes don't fall. I think that the hope is uh, J.C. Treader and, and D. Smith get everybody together and say, okay, we're just not going to show up for April 19th. Uh, we'll continue to negotiate and ultimately uh, find some middle ground, maybe scale back, uh, maybe more work for the rookies and first-year players, maybe less work for the veteran players. But again, even, I, I said even that has its pitfalls because there's a big difference between if you're the starting quarterback and you're a special teams guy. You, you might lose ground in competition that is supposed to take place over the summer. Maybe one of these young kids catches the eyes of Nick Sirianni or special teams coordinator Michael Clay, and 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 you're a a, a, a player who's on the back end of the roster. You're going to lose your job. So that's why it's so difficult. But the, there's no question the players' union would like no off-season work whatsoever. Um, and show up for maybe mini camp. Maybe they would agree to that, and then training camp. And boy, I got to tell you, Jody, the health uh, part of this argument, the the I, I think is so disingenuous because in theory, and I'll tell you this, uh, I'll tell you why. You can't tell me that even some of these great facilities around the country, and there's a lot of great ones where. NFL players work out. You can't tell me they have safer protocols than NFL team facilities when it comes to COVID and the pandemic. It's not possible. They don't have the money. They don't have the financial wherewithal. So that part of it is incredibly disingenuous. This is about work. This is about quality of life. 
This is about not wanting to be there because it's a difficult grind. And by the way, I don't necessarily disagree with them. But, I mean, at least let's have an honest conversation. Don't frame it with the pandemic and COVID because that's not what this is about. But you're right. It can be a cover-up both ways. Here's the other question I have uh, for you. The league is going to handle it the way that they think they should. Uh, I'm sure the coaching uh, aspect of it is more, 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 more time with the players, more workout hours. We want to get more stuff in. We want to be that much more prepared when the league starts. But the guy who's going to make the decision, like many of the decisions, as we've discussed over the last couple of days, is Jeff Flory himself because he is the owner. Do the owners get together and say, listen, do we really need to fight this? Because we're going to come off as looking like a bunch of guys who are saying, yes, we want you to risk your your health. Despite Johnny Mack's stance of it's disingenuous and it's as safe as you're going Not to be my anywhere stance. else. It's an, it's an obvious stance, but I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Yes, it's a court of public opinion. Everybody's trying to win in the court of public opinion. You're right. Nobody likes the NFL. Nobody likes the rich guy. Nobody likes the all-powerful. They're going to say, you don't care about the health of these players. Meanwhile, they have no idea that same player is going to a training facility that is nowhere near as safe as the training facility would be. But, you know, education is more difficult than lying. That's why people lie. That's why politicians lie. Because it's tough to educate. It's easy to lie. Here's the reason why I bring it up. They just completed a collective bargaining agreement that's going to run for, what, 10 more years? They're now yeah. locked into a CBA for the next thing. So there's nothing to be won here. There's no, if we were lent to this and give the players what they want, which is all virtual training, no insight training, uh, it's a chip that we can store up for our collective bargaining. We are not collectively bargaining for a decade. So the owners don't have to worry about that. So the only reason why they would go along with this movement that the players not show up for voluntary workouts is to win a PR battle, to win yes. over uh, the fan base and go, hey, at least the NFL is truly thinking about their players' health and they are cutting back and the players took a stance and the owners agreed and said, yes, we're going to do it virtually. We want to make sure all our players get through the year. But the coaching staff is going to be in the owners and general managers. Other are going, we need to work. We need to work. I'm a new coach here in Philadelphia. I'm a new coach. I got to learn my players. They got to be in front of me. I got to coach them up. Uh, how is that going to play out? Is there a chance the owners say, yeah, no, we're going to do the right thing by our players. Wink, wink, nod, nod, and let them work out virtually. Or will this become a little bit of a battle between the two sides? Well, I, I definitely think it, this is a, certainly a coaching battle, as I said, versus a quality of life battle. Coaches always want more preparation time, and there has to be. That's what you're arguing about. That's the fine line we're arguing about. I would I would say J.C. Treader's not right. I don't think the product is what it once was. I don't know what you feel, Jody, but I think one of the reasons offenses and defensive have, have gone to more – simplified schemes is because coaches don't have the time to be Bill Walsh anymore. You can't have this intricately developed offense with West coast plays with 18 options, because I, I got news for you. You don't have time to teach the guys that. Um, so you go to read option, you go to zone read, uh, you go to more simplified schemes on defense. You go to cover two, cover three. 
because you don't have the time. Uh, and that's one of the things that defines Bill Belichick's brilliance because he's the only coach in the NFL that morphs from week to week. He might show up playing a three, four, one week, a uh, four, three, the next, he might, he might do something completely, completely different. And he has been that way because he has confidence in himself to teach the players. Everybody else is trying to scale back and trying to make things more simple because they don't have the time with the players to teach them. Now, for those who, who didn't watch a different generation, only grew up with the current generation, it's fine because they never saw a more intricate sort of game plan, a more intricate offense. To them, it is the same. To others, it isn't the same. So it kind of depends where you land. Let me then ask you this, because one of the statements the NFLPA made, again, I think this was before they got teams to officially say, yes, we're going uh, as a group virtual. We're not going to show up for workouts. But the stance that the NFLPA took and released in a public statement was the quality of play was better <laughs> than ever in almost every aspect Talk about hyperbolic, uh, a oh. little bit of an overstatement. You're saying yeah. that's just complete malarkey, yeah. that on. they dumbed it down and made it much more simplistic. How do they have the quality of play better than ever before in almost every aspect? How is that true, Johnny Mac? They're saying you're full of beans. Well, it's not true. But what are they going to say? And that's what I said before. It's easy to lie. It's tough to tell the truth. You know, I often, there was that, I often use that Penn State game. Remember Penn State? It was when Trace McSorley was there. They were playing Ohio State. Everybody was excited. Uh, it was like a fourth and five at the end of the game. Ohio State was a powerhouse. Penn State was coming back. And, and they ran a zone read on the most important play of the game. And everybody was going nuts. And they lose the game. The play gets blown up. Uh, James Franklin's getting excoriated. And I'm, I'm saying to people, that's what they practice during the week. That's what they do. You can't just pull out the Bill Walsh West Coast masterpiece when you haven't practiced it. So that's what they do. And if that's what they do at the biggest moment, that's what they're going to run. And so you have to get that. That's the give and take. People expect, oh, the athletes are better. They're in better shape. They're more explosive, all that kind of stuff. The scheming is simplified, and any coach of the NFL will tell you that. Here's where I do agree with you. Uh, it's 25 years ago now. It doesn't seem like that to me, but it is 25 years ago when the Cowboys were at their Super Bowl-level best and ripped off back-to-back uh, -back Super Bowls over the Bills, got another one after Jimmy Johnson had stepped away under Barry Switzer. You talk about a simplified offense that they ran. They did. Their, oh, their the offense, yeah. Yeah. that was like a 10 to 12 play offense. They, they had three running plays. They that, had three running plays. That was all they needed because yeah. they were so physically talented and gifted yeah. positionally that you could know what was coming and they would say, yeah. we'll just block it better than you can defend it. So we'll continue to run the same plays down your throat over and over and over again. And that was when there was more time to work with the players. They well, just didn't have to. 
And I'll go one step further. It's always about execution because people talk about play calling all, all week. I've said this to you before. They All they talk about is play calling, play calling. They're not judging play calling. They're judging play results. results. They yeah. have no idea about the execution, about if the left guard missed his block, what, what happened to blow up this particular play. Maybe if everybody's on the same play, uh, same page, it works out. I agree with you. When you have Hall of Fame talent, when you have Emmett Smith in the backfield, when you have one of the greatest offensive lines in the history of football, you just execute and you just beat somebody. But again, the other side of that coin, coin is the Bill Walsh's of the world who did have these 300 page playbooks. One of the things, you know, I go back to this is an Eagles show, so we'll go to Doug Peterson. You remember early in Doug Peterson's tenure, everybody thought Chip Kelly was the genius. I would joke, he had S8 on his play card. Doug Peterson comes in from the Walsh-Andy Reed tree. He's got the 300-page playbook, and they think Chip Kelly's the smart guy, and all he does is run the same thing over and over again. His whole defense, his whole offense was based on tempo. That was it. He was a one-trick pony. Get in better shape and – you know, put these guys' tongues on the ground and, and run past them. That was it. Right. And it worked for about 10 minutes in the NFL, and people got overly excited because of it. But then, yes, it eventually petered out. And Remember that play card, Jody? S8. Remember uh, the big S8? I remember the guys holding the signs on the sidelines, and mm. somehow Eagle fans got sucked into believing that uh, they were outthinking, outsmarting the National Football League. That was not the case, and it didn't take long for it to be figured out. Um, but this ongoing debate, and it will continue, shoot, we may get another team that uh, signs off and says, we'd prefer to do virtual workouts and not show up uh, during the uh, – Oh, I think we're going to get a lot of teams. I think that's where we're going. Will there be a holdout? Will one team, a group that's desperate to win this year, that truly does love their coaching staff, maybe they're in, although your cynical stance is it doesn't have all that much to do with the virus itself. It's just uh, downtime, and they don't really want to have to report back to their cities if they live out of towns, that that's the main driving force. Is there a team that's going to say, as a collective, as a group, no, we're showing up. We don't care how many other teams don't show up. We, the Washington football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Seattle Seahawks, pick your team, need to show up this year. We're showing up. Sorry, Union. Um, No, no, absolutely not. People criticize the NFLPA when they compare it to the baseball union or, you know, which has been historically – uh, much stronger, but no, they would never have that fracture. If, if if every team starts to fall, and we saw the start of that domino, every team will line up. Every team. No question. You don't think there's going to be any uh, negotiating within themselves as a group to say, yeah, listen, it's working for that team, that town, but it doesn't necessarily work for us. It's going to be individual meetings. Well, they'll the pretend. In- yeah, they'll pretend. I mean, the Eagles are going to meet and pretend and say it has nothing to do with the other teams. But no, uh, J.C. Treader and D. Smith are going to have their ducks lined up in a row. Um, otherwise, they have no chance, let's be honest. So um, you don't even get to this point if they don't think that they have everybody on board. All right, and I did uh, point this out, and it did. It jumped off the page at me, and I thought it was 
quite an overstatement. Quality of play was better than uh, ever <laughs> yeah. before by almost every. Uh, they even took Jody. They even took credit for the lack. You know, the penalties calls were way down last year. They even took credit for that when that was just a mandate from the league office. And the said, players were more disciplined. That's why there were less. Yeah, because they were less. They were less tired, I guess, was the theory. So they weren't reaching and holding. Oh, Whereas okay. Park, Park Avenue said, look, you know, the entertainment value is is not exactly great now. Scale back on the holding calls. That's we, basically what happened. We need to keep the yellow leather off the field. That's exactly what happened. I, I agree with you there. Um are they going to be able to sell this to the fans, though? You and I are responding. We're hosting a show here on uh, YouTube. Uh, we're diehard football followers, watchers, and fans. But will the average John Q. Public fan be, yeah, that's right. Let, these guys are overtasked. Uh, they can just get together on a computer and talk about it online and down the line, and they'll be perfectly fine. Or do you think there'll be a reaction from fans? Or do you think it's something that will just completely fly under the radar and fans will not even just tell me when the games start, yeah. then wake me up. I think it'll fly under the radar. I mean, fans don't get to see OTAs or anything, so it's not anything they're missing. I don't think they'll miss it much. They might get excited about reading the reports from uh, reporters and such, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. So I don't think it'll have that much uh, impact on the fan and, and whether he – uh, is excited. The NFL has done a great job. I say it all the time with the calendar. Uh, it went, that's the reason this show exists because NFL news never stops. Um, and I don't think that changes with taking away a couple days of on field work in shorts and shirts that doesn't really matter. I I'll, I'll be the first to admit that too. It's not, you know, for, for the young players, for the rookies, Jody, I think it's important to do some install to get them going on the offense or the defense. But for the veteran players, I don't think it matters. And it only matters for those back-end roster guys, as I said, who might lose sort of, uh, uh, you know, favor with the coaching staff when there's younger players there, sort of out of sight, out of mind type of thing. Speaking of NFL news is an ongoing, never-ending, churning cycle that goes 365. I did see this yesterday. Just want to get your quick take on this. Russell Wilson, this upcoming Sunday, is going to be on NBC TV. No, it's not a middle-of-the-spring football game that shows up on Sunday night on NBC. He's going to be hosting a show about Roll Your Sleeve Up. It's going to be about everyone should be getting the coronavirus uh, booster shot. Um, I, I'm all for it. I applaud Russell Wilson and the other people who are behind this and NBC putting it on at 7 o'clock on a Sunday. But there are some players in the National Football League that are averse to getting inoculated, that they just don't necessarily want to do it and or trust uh, what is being asked of them. Any blowback for Russell Wilson on this, that he's going to be no, not there's only no, doing it, There's but... always blowback. Anything that's politicized, it's going to get some blowback. And certainly this is ha, has been politicized. I think it's interesting that, you know, the NFL came out and mentioned that employees have to get uh, vaccinated 
or they won't be able to be around the players. But the players, they can't because the players have that union. Right. Uh, and they can't demand uh, that they get inoculated. So uh, they've gone down the education route and tried to encourage it. Uh, but I do think it's interesting. I think if somebody who works for one of these teams wants to create a kerfuffle, they could probably do that. And, and uh, that might make things a little bit ugly, but it's interesting uh, what the NFL is going to do. I, I got my first shot. My second shot, I think, is scheduled for April 26th, Jody. So I, I might be a little sick for the draft. I got uh, lucky. I got both in. And, uh, again, different people react differently. I know a couple people, my wife included, who had an adverse reaction to the second shot. Now, 24 hours later, she was fine, but she yeah. was truly laid up for an entire day on the couch. I had to, uh, I don't want to say wait on her hand and foot, but I'm a good husband, so I took <laughs> care of her. Um, I had no reaction whatsoever. My arm was a little sore from where I got the shot. But other than that, I was perfectly fine. So I got lucky, but I am a fan of the vaccine, and I hope uh, everyone does uh, get out there and get it. All right, he is John McMullen. I'm Jody McDonald. We are your Mac and Mac guys. We're looking to add a third Mac. Tim McManus of ESPN is going to jump aboard with us. ESPN's Eagle Beat reporter. So we're going to make it a triple Mac attack coming up for you next here on Birds 365. If you missed any of today's show on the Jacob Media channel, listen to the podcast on your way home. Available on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. Welcome to the Wildwoods. The perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all. Catch a wave, take a nap, go for a drive, grab a bite. It's your vacation, and we're doing everything we can to make it a safe one. The Wildwoods. Your vacation, your way. The, the, the middle. The middle. So, bro, I know we're going to get on that, but I, I, I got to say happy birthdays to the, to the kids in the stream. You know what I'm saying? We we looking. We checking it out. Happy birthday to your, your kids, man. You know what I'm to saying? To who? The kids, man. I'm watching the stream, man. What stream? It's double birthdays. You got to keep your eyes yeah, off that stream. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you have a conversation with the stream, and nobody has any idea what you're you talking gotta about. You got to give us That's a heads up. Get you hip to it. Because they get you into it. No, no, no. We I have no idea what you're talking bro. about. So now we're in the middle of something, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Happy right. birthday! Happy birthday yeah. to who? I have no idea what was, I, what's going on right now. I, I can just imagine people listening on Sports Map Radio, just like, what did he just say? Who's play talking action to? real? Play action real. His son Nick. Happy birthday, bro! And All right. Old. Now, now everybody's got a birthday. Joey B's daughter, sixteen today. Yeah. I mean, calling BS. Today. Seriously, this is like AC Green selling that he right. was a virgin back with Showtime. The middle with Aton Shander, Barrett Brooks, and Harry Mays. Weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local Union 98, is a proud sponsor of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause every Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. IBEW Local 98's highly trained and superbly skilled electricians are the best in the business, setting the highest safety standards in the electrical industry. So when you're planning your next industrial, commercial, or residential project, choose an IBEW Local 98 union contractor. Learn more at IBEW98.org. The future waits for no one, so we refuse to wait for it. We're not just pilots and engineers. We are pioneers. Today, battles are waged in nanoseconds. 
planes are piloted from the other side of the world. We turn night into day and fly missions in space. The future's not coming. It's already here. This is the future. Join us and be the future. Jody Mack, the legendary sports talker, joins forces with NFL insider John McMullen. Start your morning with Johnny Mack and Jody Mack across the Jacob Media Network. You're tuned to Birds 365 here on the Media Channel, YouTube, or LinkedIn on phillyvoice.com. Thanks for jumping aboard with Mac and Mac, or is it Mac and Mac and Mac? Because John McMullen, Jody McDonald, glad to be punching up a buddy that I've known for a long time, and I don't get to talk to him near as much as I'd like to, but it's good to get together with him here today on Birds 365. Tim McManus, field reporter for the ESPN on the Eagles. T-Mac, J-Mac, J-Mac here, a Mac attack uh, tripled. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's great to be with you guys. Mac and Mac and Mac. I even grew out the goatee so I can match you two. There we go. Yeah. You got to get a little bit whiter, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to dye that bad boy white. Yeah. That's my, my kids are working on that. Don't worry. <laughs> T-Mac, uh, we've been lucky enough to get uh, Bo Wolf and uh, I know you know those guys as well as you do, uh, to talk about the article that they did get to put up on The Athletic this week about the dysfunction with the Eagles. You're around it. You know the Eagles. You've been on the beat now for years. I'm sure you weren't surprised by it. But was there one thing in there that you said, damn, even as close as I am to this, I didn't know this or I didn't know that this was this bad? No, I, I feel like I had a pretty good sense of, of what's been going on in that building. I think that the, the guys did a tremendous job of, of laying it out and taking readers inside what has grown into a dysfunction within the Eagles organization. And, uh, you know, the image that's in my mind is of Peterson standing on the on the art museum steps saying that this is the new normal. Um, you know, there's a there's a difference between getting to the mountaintop and then knowing what to do once you get there. And I think that that is a lot of what we're seeing, uh, where all the parties involved, um, and this is not just Roseman and Loria, all the parties involved did not handle success well. And I don't think a lot of the stuff that, that you heard in there, um, the way that it was set up, it was set up really from day one that Peterson was, you know, was hired as head coach. But, you know, once those strains um, are coupled with losing, uh, that's really when, when the wheels came off. You know, it's Tim, it's interesting as I look back at the Doug Peterson era, I think the mistake from his perspective, and I mentioned this with Bo earlier, I wanted to get your take on it, was that when he did win the Super Bowl, uh, and he did sort of was at the height of his power, uh, he did not try to seize more power. Typically, a coach would do that. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be personnel. I don't think Doug was comfortable with that. I don't think that's the way to go. But when you talk about the Tuesday meetings, which we all knew about, but, you know, let's be honest. Andy Reid wouldn't have put up with that. You think about the coaching staff this time. I don't even think Josh McDaniels would put up with that. Why didn't yeah. Doug put his foot down? 
Well, you know, I think that it's not really his nature. I think that, a lot, you know, one of his greatest strengths, John, was collaborative approach of allowing other people to come in and he didn't feel like he was always the smartest guy in the room and he would welcome other people's ideas from from analytics on down and that was part of when it was going well of of what the strength was um you know but but the tuesday meetings from my understanding actually started in the chip kelly era so it wasn't totally new and, and chip's a very strong personality as we know and then it was working with peterson like the whole setup um you know I guess at, at my core, I, I don't believe that the Eagles brass ever fully trusted Peterson from like day one. Uh, he didn't I agree interview. with that. Yeah, he didn't interview well uh, from from my understanding. They weren't going to go in that direction. As we know, they're going to hire Ben McAdoo. And then they, you know, the Giants uh, scooped him up. And so they had to go to plan B or plan C. And I think that they had these different practices in place to help him along, whether that was you know, trying to set them up with good assistant coaches or having those meetings or, you know, really being actively involved in shaping the game day roster, uh, you know, making sure that analytics were implemented in, in game day strategy. I mean, all of these things were kind of like, you know, these protections around Peterson that, you know, probably in their view helped him, um, you know, ascend to, to this spot. Uh, and then I just think that, everybody once they win it's the same thing with players and you've been around it when players win they all start to feel a little bit entitled they all start Mm -hmm. to feel like you know i was the one that got us here and i think you saw that all across the board i think that that lori and and roseman started encroaching further and further on peterson's space which is counterintuitive because he's a super bowl head coach and of course that super bowl head coach now is not going to want you to be as involved or even further involved than you were before you know, as you're going along and, and that created this dynamic that that we're talking about. Um, so, I mean, going back to the original question, I just don't think it was in Peterson's nature to push back when, when clearly pushing back was probably needed. T-Mac, let me follow up on that. Um, coaching staffs, the previous coaching staff, Doug Peterson, as compared <laughs> to the one that is now in place. If all the reporting's accurate, you guys would know uh, Doug either didn't have influence, didn't want influence, and when he tried to exert influence, was shot down. In other words, we're going to make changes whether you like it or not, or you could be fired too. Uh, So the Doug Peterson era now, the coaching staff uh, was put together, changed, and everything else is on record. Here comes Nick Sirianni, new head coach, never been a head coach before, went behind the years to umpteen degrees, and at least from afar, it looks like Nick Sirianni was the major mover and shaker in deciding who was going to be on his coaching staff, more so than Harry Roseman, more so than Jeff Lloyd, more so than anybody else. How did that dynamic change from general manager, a.k.a. owner, decide who should be on the head coach's staff to giving the head coach free reign to put together a staff that he wanted with less gravitas and accomplishments than a Super Bowl winning coach had how did that all play the way that it played out? That's it's a really interesting question. I think on the defensive side of the ball, I would still say that management, you know, was was asserting their their sway. Like Jonathan Gannon, 
as an example, even though he has ties to Nick Sariani, you know, they were intent on hiring him as the defensive coordinator, kind of regardless of who the coach was. Like Josh McDaniels wanted one Gannon from from my understanding. They won a Gannon. And really, if you go back to the the Jeffrey Lurie, Doug Peterson conversations of like, what's your staff going to look like? The conversations that obviously ended in Peterson getting fired. You know, Peterson was just going to promote from in-house. He was going to have Matt Burke be the D.C., and that was kind of end of the conversation in his mind, where whereas the Eagles wanted to expand it. You know, you're you're replacing Jim Schwartz. Uh, let's let's look at the candidates. And, and Gannon was one of the guys that they were really serious about. So uh, so I think that their influence was felt on the defensive side of the ball. But to your point on offense, a lot of these guys, you know, feels like are Nick Sariani guys. And I think that it's important to kind of, you know, kind of get into the nuance here with Peterson and with what was a lack of trust I feel between management and Peterson, you know, maybe they didn't trust him as much uh, to, to hire the assistant coaches uh, because he wasn't laying out the vision uh, that, that was ringing uh, right in their ears. Whereas Sirianni, he's, you know, at least initially he comes in very detailed. Here's what I want. This is why I want it. And, and management, you know, these guys aren't just like, I mean, they're certainly flawed, but if, if they're hearing what they, think sounds good from the coach's perspective it's not like they've just gone completely crazy with their power like they're going to listen and and uh and try to make that work and so i think what sirianni has been telling them has been ringing true in their ears and i think that's a a large reason why we're seeing that assistant coach uh staff shake out the way it is all right tim uh let's expand a little bit on jeffrey Lurie and how much he's involved and how much that has increased or decreased you know i've talked to people like mark echo who said he was really involved you know when andy was here Andy was just better at steering him in the right direction you mentioned uh the tuesday meetings actually started with chip kelly um when you see reports of him putting the thumb on the scale with draft picks or talking you know forcing a positional assistance to be fired. Is that a bridge too far? Is that where he goes too far? Or do you think it's been overblown a little bit? No, I think it's, it's, he's definitely going too far with that, John. And, and, you know, my reporting suggests that he was, he was influential in the Jalen Hurts pick. Um, and there's reports out there where he was influential in others like uh, JJ Ortega Whiteside. And, um, you know, maybe Hurts turns out to be a great player, but we know the impact that that had and the, kind of the ripple effect that has, has now led to, Carson Wentz no longer being part of the team, franchise quarterback. And uh, yeah, I think that his power, certainly he has asserted it more and more as the years have gone on. I think in particular after the Chip Kelly experience, you know, there's the the quote of, you know, I want to get my team back. And I, I think that you have seen that. I think that the rise of analytics uh, has emboldened him to think that he is, you know, um, equipped uh, to make these kind of decisions, believing that that's such a big part of the game now. I know a lot about it. Uh, let's look at that. And he's always been kind of a, a you know, a quarterback student uh, studying tape, you know, going to senior bowls to watch, to scout Carson Wentz, all of these different things, you know. So, you know, Lori uh, previously, I think, had a nice balance where he was involved, but it wasn't overly so. And especially when you had a dynamic guy like Reed, he couldn't step in and infringe on that territory too much without upsetting things. Reed wouldn't let him. Uh, and, and that created a, a nice balance in that building. Uh, but, but in the absence of that and with Lori wanting to be more involved and with the vacuum in power with, with Peterson there, you know, he stepped right into it. And, and I think that that has really disrupted 
uh, the organizational flow. I just think that when you have an owner that is meddling too much, it's going to screw things up. And if they uh, just went by what the scouts had told them last year, they would have walked away with Justin Jefferson and Jeremy Chin in the first two rounds. And they were the best two rookies in their respective side of the ball last year. Uh, they, they need to uh, get back to that. They need to kind of, you know, kind of deflate the ego a little bit take a step back, recognize that while they delivered a championship, they weren't the reason for it. They were part of it, but they weren't the reason for it and get back to the, the balance of power that led them to success previously. T-Mac, I want to take you to the draft because uh, me and my partner have a philosophical difference here. Uh, Eagles currently scheduled to pick at number 12, which is the top half of the first round. J-Mac keeps singing the tune of Eagles history, Eagles DNA. When they have a high first-round draft pick, they save between the tackles, quarterback, offensive line, defensive line. I think they're going outside. I think it's going to be a corner or a wide receiver. I don't think there's any chance Kyle Pitts gets down there, so it's not going to be a tight end. But if they were to get aggressive and jump back up, if he falls to eight and they make a move, I'd include tight end on the outside too. Eagles going to pick someone inside or outside. Are they sticking with history and DNA or are they going to take the best player available? Cause they do need in my mind upgrades, both sides of the ball outside corner and wide receiver. Yeah, no, I mean, to, to Johnny Max point, I think seven of the last 10 first round picks that they've had have been inside the trenches. I mean, so the, the history is clearly there. It's the way that they've built this team before uh, but that being said, I do feel like ultimately they're going to go on the outside. And that's just kind of looking at the different prospects. Like, so, so uh, Vera Tucker or Rashawn Slater, um, are they tackles? Are they guards? Like there's question marks around them. Uh, Quiddy Pay, the defensive end out of, out of Michigan, he didn't have the production that matches, you know, the, the athleticism and ability. So what's that all about? In other words, at least from where I'm standing, those guys have too many question marks to feel like super great about walking away with them at number 12. I think that they need to nail this pick and I think they need to feel really good that they have acquired a, a blue chip prospect in the process. To me, those type of guys are Patrick Sertan, um, maybe JC Horn, Jalen Waddle. You know, those are the guys that I think that they could all collectively rally around and I think that there's some people uh that that wouldn't have been mad if a guy like Sertan was picked at six right so yeah. so I think that there's a uh you know I think that what they should do is go after a player like that number one because the defensive secondary is going to be a big thing under Jonathan Gannon and and Johnny Mack you know this better than anybody the way that they they run defenses like the Mike Zimmer defense you need to you need the good corners you need a strong secondary and, and, you know, I think that they should move up and grab Sertan. I mean, they have 11 picks. Uh, they have Zach Ertz. They have all these resources. And, you know, they're not going to use those 11 picks, all of them. So what I think they should do is leapfrog their two rivals and, and the Giants and the Cowboys and land their guy. And, and ultimately, I think that should be a guy like Sertan or Waddle. You know, it is interesting, and I have to defend myself, T-Mac, because Jody brings that up without the context of saying, now, if you go back to Andy, so 1999 forward, anytime the Eagles have been in the top half of the draft, 16 or above, it's been quarterback, offensive line, defensive line. Now, they've already moved down once. But, you know, we kind of know, because of what's going on, that – the, the allocation, the, the addition of assets, this is about 2022. This is kind of a two-year plan. So who's to say 
you don't fall down again, where it's a little bit more comfortable to take somebody like Quiddy Pay. Brandon Graham's aging, Derek Barnett last last year of his contract, uh, Benny Curry's gone. It's only Josh Sweat. So you have to add edge rusher. I think that is an under sort of valued position that the Eagles really, really need right now. No, I, I would agree with you. Um, maybe the common ground we can find between the three of us is it doesn't feel like 12 is a natural spot for them. No, right? does not. Um, so, and we know Roseman's history. He's been the second most active in, in uh, draft day trades next to only Belichick. Uh, we know he's already moved once, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if he moves again. I think that you should be aggressive in this spot, and I think that you should go and, and target one of the players that, that I mentioned. I mean, you, I think that you want to walk away feeling really good that you have a building block here, even if it is on the outside. Uh, but, you know, to your point, um, if that doesn't work out for them, if the asking price isn't right, if Carolina or Denver don't want to move, as an example, and you're kind of sitting there and you're not loving the value, then I think that you can slide back a few slots maybe for a QB hungry team. Let's see what quarterbacks are left at that point and, uh, and end up with one of those linemen, um, you know, whether it be on the defensive side with pay or, or one of the offensive, uh, you know, guard slash tackles. So I think that strategy makes sense and is probably in play. I just, uh, I'm not an Eagle beat reporter like you two guys. So I am going to need you to fill in the blanks for me. If you're looking at most teams starting three cornerbacks these days in the NFL, because everybody does three wide receivers, slide QB to outside uh, cornerback. Who are the Eagles starting cornerbacks again? Darius Slay and who? Avante like Maddox uh, will be in the slot. Maybe Mike Jaquette if they had to play right now, Tim. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, so, so cornerback isn't a big need that they have to address no, in the first round need. of the draft. Is and, that what you tell me, Johnny you know, Mack? And there are guys out there. T.J. Carey, I think, is logical on the free agent market, has a history with Jonathan Gannon. Uh, Steven Nelson is still out there. Gary and Conley. I, are I are still they going to think... sign any of these guys before the draft? Or are they going to wait till they pass on the cornerback and take the alignment and then go out and get this guy who's going to step into their starting lineup as a cornerback this year? Well, maybe, we'll maybe let Tim answer that though. one. Maybe it makes sense to wait, right, John? Uh, yeah. Because, because there are several guys, as, as uh, Johnny Mac notes, uh, because of you know the depressed market and free agency, there's still a lot of you know decent corners that are that are yeah. sitting out there. And so maybe they can afford to wait and just see like do they land Horn or Sertan? And if they do, then maybe they don't have to emphasize as much on the the veteran yeah. cornerback market. Whereas you know if it goes a different direction, they end up with the lineman. They're not sold on the the corner that they end up taking. That they that they get some insurance there. I think that that makes sense. And, uh, you know, Tim, if you look at Jonathan Gannett's history, last year with the Colts, he had T.J. Carey and Xavier Rhodes, who was a heck of a cornerback with the Vikings, but he was really bad uh, that last year in Minnesota. kind of kind of was a reclamation project. So it's not like the Colts went all in at the cornerback position. They kind of relied on Jonathan Gannett to build those guys up. So, you know, it, who's to say T.J. Carey doesn't come in here? It could well be. And I, what I've heard about, uh, you know, Gannon so far, obviously he's got the background in the defensive secondary. And I think that his scheme is going to be secondary reliant. I think that there's going to be a heavy emphasis on that. Uh, you know, we've, we've kind of gotten accustomed under Jim Schwartz to, to it being all about the front four. And it's not to say that that's not going to be important. Of course it will be. Uh, but I think that they're going to put a pretty he heavy emphasis on that. And John, you could probably speak to, to the, 
why that's important in the, the Mike Zimmer scheme. Yeah, well, I mean, Mike is the same way as Jim. I mean, it all starts up front. It all starts with the pass rush. The difference is he 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 advocates being really disciplined on the pass rush. So he's not necessarily concerned with sack numbers. He's more concerned with keeping the quarterback uh, either in the pocket if you have a real dual threat or, or getting him off the spot if it's a pocket-style quarterback. And then having playmakers on the back end, which is where – Harrison Smith and Anthony Harris have made a ton of plays. And I, by the way, Anthony Harris, I think was a great value signing for the Eagles, real center fielder, ball hawk type. And they haven't had that. Rodney does a good job. There's a little bit of a redundancy, I think, between those two players. So when Rodney is healthy, I'm interested to see how that would fit. We will uh, get a chance to see that. I think both the Eagles' free agent signings on the defensive side have been uh, relatively inexpensive and guys who can step in and play. IT Mac, I asked this question earlier on the show. I'll ask it to you now. Uh, Johnny Mac wrote a great column about uh, the one-year experiment that will be Jalen Hurts. They're going to hand him the keys to the car. He's going to be the quarterback in 2021. He'll get a chance to sink or swim but they're not making anything more than a one-year commitment to Jalen Hurts. If that's the case, and I think it probably is, and John wrote a great column about it, who's going to be the decider as to whether what he shows this year is good enough to take him into 2022 or further as the starting quarterback? Is it going to be the coaching staff who are going to be working hand-in-hand with him? Is it going to be Howie Roseman? who made the decision to give Carson Wentz $128 million and then had to suck up $33 million in dead cap bit? Is it going to be Jeff Lurie? Is he going to step all over the football play people, the coaching staff, and the general manager that he has in place to say, no, I decide about the quarterback of this team. Who's going to make the call after we have the evaluated 2021 year of Jalen Hurts' career? Well, there's a difference between who it should be and who it will be. I mean, <laughs> who it should be is Nick Sirianni and that coaching staff. I mean, they're they're the ones that should be making the evaluation as to whether he is the, the quarterback for them moving forward. Uh, the answer is Lori. Um, you know, he's already kind of given too is directive too too strong a word. If not, he's influenced Hertz uh, being being the guy on two different occasions. You know, num- number one by drafting him in the, in the second round. I mean, he influenced that pick. And by the way, when, when you're the boss, you know, you don't have to say like, you got to draft this guy. When you're the boss, you make your opinion known and then the people go out and do it. Okay. Right. So that's how it works in all businesses. So, you know, he influenced that pick. And then, you know, as, as uh, Chris Mortensen's reporting uh, this offseason has been, he wants Hertz now to be the guy out, out front this year, give him a shot, hand him the reins, see what he's got, evaluate him, don't bring in any, any true competition for him. And so what, who's to say that it won't be Laurie again at the end of this year, making the determination whether it's going to be moving forward with Hertz or not? I mean, Going back to the athletic piece, going back to the reporting that Jeff McClain has done, going back to what we know about the dysfunction that has happened, a lot of it centers around the fact that the owner has gotten too involved. Um, and is Sirianni the guy to push him out of that spot? I mean, maybe eventually, but he doesn't have the clout to do that right now, Jody Mack. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be Lori's call ultimately. 
Uh, it, it, my last one for you, Tim, and read Tim at ESPN.com. Nobody does a better job of covering the Philadelphia Eagles than Tim McManus. Our first Mac cubed. I don't think it's going to be the last one. It is cubed, right? I'm not a math guy. I think you got it. Yeah, it's not squared. It's cubed. Okay. Um, Tim, I wanted to talk about Nick Sirianni. I want to talk about his upside as a head coach because – if you look at recent history, I mean, it's really unlikely he's going to win a Super Bowl after a second season. So what is the shelf life for a Philadelphia Eagles coach in the current environment? Or has it just come down to personality and being able to handle Jeffrey Lurie? Is that his only path to success? Well, as we know, he's, he's really stepping in it. I mean, he's, he's walking into a situation that's going to be really tough to navigate, not just because they're going through a state of transition, but because of, you know, everything that's been going on in, in terms of the dysfunction. You know, I talked to somebody who, who went into that building kind of, uh, you know, wide eyed thinking one thing and walked away saying, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea uh, what, I, what I was in for, what it was like. And, and I think that's going to be really hard for Seriani. this being, you know, his first time as a head coach on any level uh, operating in a really intense media market under the current situation. That's, that's really hard to do. Uh, but people who are dismissing Seriani as a guy that just like, you know, doesn't know what he's doing based off of a press conference or two are also jumping to conclusions that they should not. I mean, I think the, the more that you see him settle in as an example of him doing the X and O thing uh, with PhiladelphiaEagles.com and Fran Dumpy, if you guys saw it, like that was him yeah. in his environment where he knows football. It's all he seems, I mean, one track minded in that way. He's obsessed about it. Um, you know, listening to Frank Reich and other people that he has worked under, he's really intelligent when it comes to that, a really creative mind. And obviously he's got a whole lot of passion. Uh, so I think that, you know, people who are writing him off prematurely probably shouldn't uh, give him a chance, see what he's got. And, you know, and even the first year is, is probably going to be tough to, to judge him fully uh, because of the circumstances that he's entering. But, you know, I, I think that you know, we've made the mistake in this town before of writing guys off prematurely. You know, Peterson was one of those guys. Charlie Manuel was one of those guys. And I'm not saying Seriani's going to turn into either of them. Uh, but, you know, give him, give him a shot and, uh, and see what he's got. Uh, but it's going to be an uphill road for him for sure. T-Mac, last one for me. Um, I'm on record as saying I didn't have a problem with Doug Peterson being replaced as head coach. I just thought it was wrong that Peterson got the Evo and Howie Roseman kept his job. It should have either been both stay or both go, not a splitting of the baby. So I disagree with how Jeff Laurie handled it. But Howie Roseman has shown his ability to survive in this uh, town, in this environment with his team over the last decade. And he has done so again this offseason. He seems to have come out of it as strong as ever, as a matter of fact. I hate to be the naysayer or the guy who paints the uh, dark picture, but is there a scenario under which Jeff Laurie at the end of the year goes, all right, enough's enough. I, I have to try something else. I know how he's done such a good job of tying himself to Jeff Laurie's hip. What could happen that would have the Eagle owner say, I need to get the organization changed, and the easiest and most direct way I can do that is by bringing in a new general manager? I think there's always a chance. I mean, this isn't a lifetime appointment, even though it, it kind of feels that way sometimes <laughs> with Roseman. 
Um, and who's to say maybe Roseman doesn't leave on his own uh, at, at some point? No you chance. Know, but- no chance. Never happening. How he's staying we'll for as long as he wants. It is a lifetime appointment. <laughs> we'll see. But I think, um, you know, what we should understand and what's becoming more and more clear is that Lori is very influential in the decision making. And so usually it kind of the buck stops with with Roseman. Like when people get angry, they, they shoot yeah. it all the way up the flagpole and they and it stops at Roseman. It's like, well, that's where I'm pointing, you know, my anger and my frustration at when things don't go right. But when you recognize that the, the man above him is asserting a lot of of his influence, then it makes more sense why Roseman, you know, sticks around. Uh, and why, like, why Lori views him differently? Because maybe it's a Lori slash Roseman decision that doesn't go right. Maybe it's a, a Lori decision that doesn't go right, and Roseman's taking the heat for all of it. Okay, so if you think of it that way, about like understanding how much Lori actually is involved in this thing, then then everything seems to make more sense. It it, it allows you to understand if 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 Roseman is sitting there, you know, essentially as a shield for Lori, while also doing things that that he really appreciates within the organization running it from top to bottom it's not all just about the draft it's you know the analytics department it's it's from a to z that he's doing and and he does have certainly some strengths uh when you look at it from a macro perspective it makes more sense why why roseman has stayed as long as he has and has a lot to do with the fact that we just haven't realized or the public hasn't quite caught on to the fact that you know it's it's laurie's show and 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 he's running it Tim's a, Tim is a brilliant guy. I've written that column for Billy Boyce. I just used lightning rod. I've compared Howie to Jeffrey Laurie, like Roger Goodell is for the NFL owners. When people criticize Roger Goodell, the owners are thrilled because they're the ones with the power. He's the lightning rod getting all the you-know-what, and that's what Howie Roseman is for Jeffrey Laurie. That's it. I mean, that's I mean, that's where it makes sense, because people scratch their heads a lot of the times like oh, the, the drafting's been poor. Uh, you know, there's been there's turmoil internally. You know, you hear stories of, of, of working with Roseman and it and not being great. And so, like, what's the deal? Like what? And then and then I think when you look at it from that perspective where, you know, there you know, there, there's not a lot of space between the two of them. And, and as as John said, I think that a lot of it is is him taking the heat that Lori would otherwise absorb. And oh, by the way, Roger Goodell, Howie Roseman, neither one going anywhere fast. Uh, both will be sticking <laughs> around and at least this three Mac opinion. T Mac, thank you very much for hopping on with us. Looking forward to having you on the show again. Have a great week. Thanks for a couple minutes with us here today. Congrats on the show, guys. Look forward to coming on again soon. Tim Thanks, McManus, ESPN Eagles reporter here with us on Birds 365. We'll come back, put a bow on the show couple of points as we go out the door, a hump day edition coming to an end here on Birds 365. If you missed any of today's show on the Jacob Media channel, listen to the podcast on your way home. Available on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local Union 98, is a proud sponsor of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause every Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. IBEW Local 98's highly trained and superbly skilled electricians are the best in the business, setting the highest safety standards in the electrical industry. So when you're planning your next industrial, commercial, or residential project, choose an IBEW Local 98 union contractor. Learn more at IBEW98.org. Welcome to the Wildwoods, the perfect place where you can safely do everything or nothing at all. 
catch a wave, take a nap, go for a drive, grab a bite. It's your vacation, and we're doing everything we can to make it a safe one. The Wildwoods. Your vacation, your way. The, the, the middle. The middle. <laughs> we need a little maze. Wait, wait, yeah. what was the commercial? Yeah, Harry goes, I don't need a little anything. You'd have little Harry or little maze. Little maze. And, and you pull a <laughs> string and it yeah. says, I am out. Or like four or five different maze sayings. Now that's an idea. Did you see a Shander doll? It oh, never yeah. stops talking. No, you don't even God. need to pull the string. The Middle with Aton Shander, Barrett Brooks, and Harry Mays. Weekdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. The light from a star can take millions of years to reach Earth. So when you look at a star, you're looking back in time. But I see the future. I see exploration and courage. I see my country finding new horizons out there. And I see giant leaps making a comeback. I see myself. The future is where I'll make history. Jody Mack, the legendary sports talker, joins forces with NFL insider John McMullen. Start your morning with Johnny Mack and Jody Mack across the Jacob Media Network. Thank T Mac, Tim McManus from ESPN, jumping on board with the Mac and Mac guys here on Birds 365. Uh, time's running nigh. We're uh, almost out of time for this Wednesday edition. I got to bring this up, though, T Mac. I just saw it posted within uh, the last. I'm J Mac. T Mac's gone, but I get you. My apologies. No, too many Macs. I Johnny Mac, yes. I'm easily confused. And I'm confused by what I just read. Uh, I'm on Pro Football Talk four, five, six, eight, ten times a day. And uh, they just put up a column about our buddy Shady McCoy, who was asked about the possibility of Julian Edelman being a Hall of Fame player. Edelman apparently retired yesterday. We'll see how long he stays retired. This could be a Gronkowski-type retirement where he's retired for a while and then decides to rejoin his buddy Tom Brady down in Tampa. We'll see how that plays out. But Julian Edelman, at least as of now, has announced his retirement from the National Football League. And the question popped up. I saw it on the NFL Network, a bunch of different places. Is Julian Edelman a Hall of Fame wide receiver? There are certain numbers in his overall career that say no. There are certain accomplishments in numbers that say yes. Shady McCoy was asked about it and said, no, he doesn't think Julian Edelman's a Hall of Famer um, because, as I mentioned, some of his uh, overall numbers don't necessarily stand up. And he knocked and mocked him because – he was such a playoff achiever that he made so many big plays in big spots. He said, come on, it's about the regular season, man. Basically discounting the postseason until he got to describing himself. And then he described how he, he was two Super Bowls. He was yeah. the lead dog during his time in the league, comma, and two Super Bowls. Did anyone contribute less to the last two Super Bowl winning teams? than Shady McCoy, who got a ring and contributed less. Please tell me there is someone else. 
No, I, I, I thought that was very funny. I, I think Shady is correct. I don't think, by the way, either are Hall of Famers. I, I think, you know, if there was a Hall of Very Good, they'd probably both be in it. But uh, I don't think they're Hall of Famers. But, yeah, I mean, Shady was closer to being top five at his position for a longer period of time. Uh, but, yeah, when he brought up the Super Bowls, he had nothing to do with the Super Bowls. But that's why, Jody, when people bring up rings, look, if you're successful in those games, right? That that's meaningful. But if you just have a ring, that doesn't mean you're one of the best players. I thought I thought LaShawn's argument was really well crafted early on, and then he just lost it at the end because he had nothing to do with it. I always say John Elway, uh, obviously Jody, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. He was really, really great when the Broncos were losing Super Bowls. He was average when they were winning Super Bowls. It was actually Terrell Davis that got him over the hump. Right. He was he was the big part of that offense. You know, the ring, it's great, but if you're just going to look at rings, you're not going to know the full story. Right. Tom Brady and Shady McCoy each got a ring for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers yeah. this year. Little bit of a difference as to how much they actually affected the getting of that ring, but they will each wear the ring. Uh, finish on this note. You mentioned that Shady was making a pretty good argument. Uh, give me the John McMullen argument. If one of the two is going to get into the Hall of Fame, Julian Edelman and or Shady McCoy, who would you cast your vote for? If you were told you got to choose one of the two, one you're given a pass, the other one you're given an entry, who are you putting in? Uh, Shady before Julian yeah. Edelman. I, I think he was a top five running back for a very long period of time, arguably top two for a while behind Adrian Peterson. Adrian's going in. Is Shady going in? No, I don't think he will. But I think is he closer? Yes. I don't think Edelman has a chance to go in, nor should he. Very good player. I think this is indicative of our current society where everybody gets a trophy. Again, this is supposed to be for the greatest players of all time. Was Julian Edelman ever a top five receiver? You could you could expand it out to say he's a top five slot receiver. Uh, but no, he's never been in that conversation. Doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. It's not an insult. Really good player. I agree with you and I disagree with you. Agree with you that my money, at cutting edge, neither one should get in. I don't know if either one will. The actual football writers the last couple of years have thrown me some curves. I've yeah, had a tougher time judging what they're going to do than I used to. But maybe that's my fault. Uh, so if it were me, yes, I would say neither get in. But if one of the two had to get in, oh, I'm putting Edelman in over Shady McCoy because he does have those playoff accomplishments in some of the biggest spots ever. And two yes. rings, Jody, two rings. <laughs> Shady's got two rings that he had nothing to do with. Uh, we'll get out on that note. A uh, little levity to end today's show. Shady McCoy's rings, uber important. Shady, wear them proudly because John McMullen and I both agree it doesn't look like you're getting in the Hall of Fame. We'll find out if Julian Edelman does. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Birds 365. He's John McMullen. I'm Jody McDonald. Be back with Mac and Mac tomorrow here on Birds 365. If you missed any of today's show on the Jacob Media channel, listen to the podcast on your way home. Available on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.